Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 224th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that still stands, as should we all, with the movement to end racial injustice and to fund police services in favor of more effective options. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everyone. Hello, James. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. The show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on our agenda this week? This week, a, we start off with segment one, our MTGO Metagame Weekend Review, although I guess it's kind of a flexible definition this week because we got Pro Tour Arena on here. Um, let me tell you, it was not a good Pro Tour. <laughs> segment two, our top paper movers, cards that have moved in price the most, this, most in price this week in paper. Uh, followed by the top MTGO movers, so the cards that moved the most on Moto this week. Uh, surprisingly, no blue-green cards. Segment three, our top our paper cards to watch, the cards James and I think have the best outlook. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week. I know you all want to talk about Magic 2021, but we are going to hold off for next week when we get a guest in. I don't know if we want to say who it is. Uh... So we're going to do the full, the entirety of M21 next week. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about some eBay payment structures changing as well as Wizards announcing product delays. Yeah, it's, it's no big secret who the guest is. I mean, Stafford J- Jason Alt uh, will be okay. joining us, um, master of matters EDH related. And our thinking here is that there's no competitive magic to speak of uh, off of Arena for most of the rest of the year, and the product suite is um, already dipped in the marketing die of the year of Commander. So seems like the wisest choice would be to bring a Commander-focused MTG Finance person in to help us make sure we got our finger on the pulse of which commander cards are most likely to make folks money out of this summer set being released into a very odd set of circumstances yeah i mean i didn't think it was like a, <laughs> it's not a really big deal that jason's gonna come beyond the cast i was more that like i didn't know if you had if he was t- confirmed confirmed i'd want to commit to him having been on the cast when he was like wait a minute i just said i'd think about it or no, like, i had to check my schedule or something he he is indeed uh, confirmed for next week. Okay, that'll be fun. Uh, I always enjoy when Jason and I end up on a cast together. Although if we did it every week, I'm pretty sure we'd want to murder each other. Um. Anyways, the the pro tour here. I mean, let's start there. Set some first time. A lot of first times at this uh, this weekend's pro tour players tour, whatever we want to call it. Uh, debacle. First time a pro tour has ever been run online. 
Uh, and also, the first time any card has shown up in all th- all 32 copies have shown up in the top eight of a Pro Tour. And not only did it do that, I think it did it twice, right? Or was it was it 32 Breeding Pool and 31 Growth Spiral or something like that? I mean, it was just disgusting. Yeah, I think it was 32 for 32 Growth Spiral in Pro... There was It was actually Player's Tour, not technically a Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. It is... You know, without getting into the weeds too much on it, this is a this is what they are capable of running at present. And they were basically broken up into two flights. There was two uh, tournaments with two different sets of players. One had 197 players. That was players tour uh, number one. And then players tour number two had 244 players. And there was some, you know, social media debate as to whether or not people that top aided this could claim that they top aided a pro tour. Uh, not really uh, anything I'm interested in getting into either. Um, suffice to say, people's accomplishments are their own. And I'm sure given the number, the amount of talent that was present in both of these pro tours, it was still a very difficult tournament to top eight and to win. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that the, the skill level was very high, but yeah, that's, you know, for for the game having had such a a rich history of this type of conversation and, you know, being able to compare apples to apples and it, oh God, it just, it, it's hard not to look at the past weekend and just have an utterly, as if there weren't enough things to be depressed about, to look at what happened this weekend and have just no hope whatsoever for the future of competitive magic, essentially. Um, I mean, the pandemic is responsible for some of that, but I think Wizards is is to blame on their own as well here, to be honest. It was also also worth noting that there was only 5,000 average viewers or something watching this event on Twitch, which is orders like 20 times less than was assigned when they were uh, running fake bots against this. And I would guess it actual interest to watch Magic Online has waned with this kind of demolition of player, of of the competitive culture of Magic. There was for many, many years um, a pretty well understood uh, culture, structure, hierarchy, with some variations for how you got to the pro, pro Tour, what it meant to be on the Pro Tour, what was involved, the whole travel the world, play the game thing. And so much of that has been challenged or redirected or just deconstructed in the last few years that I think I would imagine a lot of players just feel the same way I do. I just don't, didn't care at all. <laughs> what was happening with this is with this this weekend um part of it was that the format just seemed very stilted but a much bigger part of it was just that i didn't couldn't imagine why i was supposed to care yeah and i i, so I grant from wizard's perspective this is just very challenging because for the average player there is no reason to care unless you are really into the idea of competitive player, like the top players playing magic competitively and like what that means. You know, I played when I watched the pro tours, I was much more interested in the decks in the tech 
um, and occasionally, in, and to a lesser extent, seeing the professional level play, I didn't really care about the competition or the players or the stories. You know, that sort of missed me. Um, so for someone like me, there would be literal zero reason to watch this Pro Tour, even if I was still like eager to be playing competitive Magic because I can't play competitive Magic. Um, if you like the players and the the spectacle of it and the excitement... You know, if you're someone a little less uh, particular than I am, there's definitely there, there's still something there for you, but less so than there might have been otherwise. Uh, Saffron and LSV kind of got into it this weekend um, because Saffron brought up the viewership thing and how the one pro tour that they had, you know, stuck on the front page of all the curse websites had like a hundred thousand viewers, and this one had like forty eight hundred. And LSV is like, this is apples to oranges. This doesn't really count. Of course, people aren't tuning into this pro tour. There's like no marketing. It's just like cherry rigged in the last month. Whereas the other event was majorly promoted. And Saffron's like, yeah, but the whole point is that like, look at the gap. You're going from 100,000 to under 5,000. Like, yes, this is, there's no less marketing, what have you. But do you really think this would be that big of a deal? Even if they had put a ton of time and effort into it, like it's just the buying the viewers makes a huge difference. I, I feel like I can I kind of got where they both came from, but I, I'm a little more inclined to side with Saffron on that conversation. Just I would even if even if you grant that this event had a fifth of the viewers as it could have had if they really put the effort into marketing it, you would still only be at then one fifth, you'd be about 20,000, then one fifth of the number of views that the Pro Tours had when they were buying the views, which was like 100,000. Yeah, Saffron got some of the details wrong, and LSV is correct to point out that there is some apples and oranges, but your your point still stands, that they were buying a bunch of fake views. It's it's really that simple. <laughs> I flagged it early on as a, as a marketer. It was very obvious to me that those numbers were not real. <clears throat> uh, and then the same journalist, uh, Cecilia, that wrote the article about us in Wired this year, wrote the expose on all of that last year. So, you know, anybody who read that article is already aware that it's not a debate anymore as to whether or not Wizards was buying fake views. They were. It's just that simple. And they clearly had them turned off and it looked like there was a very minor amount of interest for Twitch. And I don't believe that that number would be tremendously higher, even if we were in completely normal circumstances. I think that if they turn off the fake views, it is going to be exposed that magic competitive play is just not that big a deal on Twitch. It just isn't. And it's never going to be tier one. They really, really want that to be the case because I'm sure that the people that are behind Arena have told people above them in the Hasbro organization that Arena's where it's at. We're going to make a go of this. This is going to be a really big deal, et cetera, et cetera. And they're trying to keep that train moving in the right direction. Because keep in mind that every day that you're running Arena, instead of running the economic model associated with Magic Online, you are losing money. Because the average revenue per user on Arena is significantly less than on Magic Online from the sheer reason, because of the, the simple reason that you can grind Magic Arena, as I do, without ever putting any real money into it. So you, that means you need more users in the system to get the same number of dollars in the system. And 
that is a volume play. And so from every angle, they want Arena to appear successful because when a game is talked about as successful, it makes people interested to check it out. If it is talked about as unsuccessful, it disinclines the or the the previously uninformed or neutral people out in the gaming community outside the magic uh, part of the Venn diagram from even inquiring as to whether Arena is something they want to try. So they are they're trying to fake it till they make it. It's it's pretty much that simple. Yeah, that has a huge impact too. The, the you know sort of the word of mouth component of this on successive games and and how much it gets picked up and how much people play it. Um, you know, you can look at a game like uh, one that popped up a little while ago um, in another sphere was Wolson, which was an ARPG like a Diablo type game that kind of released at the right time and had a lot of word of mouth and hype as it came out and i'm pretty sure they had just an unreal number of people that were listening and interested to you know an unreal number of people who were who played the game and the the player count surged tremendously and then it wasn't good because they weren't prepared for that volume of players and they weren't at like a true gold release and the player count i got 98% 99% player drop and i don't i don't know if the game will ever recover from that because it had such a bad launch not even bad like based on what they wanted bad just kind of the way the, the dice fell um that that can really help or hurt a game apex legends was another one that they had a kind of an outsized launch just because it happened to catch the the hype train at a good time yeah so Bottom line was the format is also looking like hot garbage. Uh, Teamer uh, Wilderness Reclamation uh, decks are just absolutely, have have basically taken over the format. In the Pro Tour Arena 1, the top eight was six Teamer Reclamation decks and two Bant Control. And in Arena 2, it was five, uh, no, four Teamer Reclamation decks, one Sultai Control, two Jun Sacrifice, and one Rakdos Aggro. So Sacrifice and a, and a smidgen of Aggro hanging out there in that combined two top eights from two players' tours. But five-eighths of the decks in the Arena 2 were running for Grow Spiral, and there was 32 copies of Grow Spiral in the top eight, the maximum ever achieved by any card in any Pro Tour level event. That is quite the story. And remember, Oko was supposed to be legal during all this, right? That was <laughs> He was also <laughs> supposed to be here for all of this? Yeah. Can you imagine if Oko had somehow been legal, we would have had... Every well, single deck would have been for Oko, for Growth Spiral, for or Breeding and, Pool. And Once Upon a Time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was legal, too. Oh, my God. Did you see my tweet earlier this week? Uh, like yesterday or the day before, I said, uh, I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, when I was wishing that Simic would be good in competitive magic, I didn't realize I was holding on to a monkey paw. <laughs> like, yeah. Whoops. <laughs> the So we did have... Uh, Ali Warfield, top eight in Pro oh, yeah. Tour Arena 2. Mythic Mebo. Uh, so top four, actually, because um, she dropped out in the uh, semis. So nice to see a female player uh, posting up and doing some hard work. Uh, this was in a field, a top eight that included uh, Abe Corrigan, Eli Loveman, uh, Eduardo Sig- Sig- 
Sajalik. He's he's a country fellow countryman, a Canadian. I should know how to pronounce his last name by now. Uh, it's not it's not an easy one. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll grant you that. And then uh, Monsieur de Praz, uh was also present there. And in the end, it was Ryuji Mirai um, with Teamer Reclamation that won that Pro Tour. And then the other one was won by a gentleman I'm not familiar with. Uh, let me just bring up his name. Uh, Elias Watzfeldt. Hmm. One player's... Bottom line, standard's looking real boring. <laughs> mm-hmm. It looks like it probably needs more bands. Uh, I would imagine they will wait and see whether the variety of safety valves that seem to be built into M21 do any work. Uh, but I didn't see anything that led me to believe that Wilderness Reclamation was going to be any worse. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, especially when you've got... You already have uh, Growth Spiral in the format. Now you're adding Azusa... You're adding, uh, call was it cultivate or something like that? You're you, yeah, yeah. cultivates in the set. So you're adding multiple cards that make wilderness reclamation even better because you're putting more lands onto the battlefield. You've also got Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath that's in this format, it's of course, and then and then of Edovicoria they gave them Shark Typhoon. I mean, so, wilderness reclamation plus Shark Typhoon is the definition of drago nastiness you drop your wilderness reclamation all your lands on tap and you've got options to do various things on your opponent's turn including making a big shark blocking as a surprise and drawing a card so uh if you'll recall i actually made a bet about wilderness reclamation with somebody uh that i play path of exile with and he saw wilderness reclamation come out and said this card is insanely busted it's gonna be banned it's too good and I said, no, 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 the card's good, but like it's not going to get banned. And uh, it came out of the gates with Nexus of Fate and was doing very well. Uh, but Nexus of Fate ended up getting the axe and Wilderness, Wilderness Reclamation. I'm like, oh, good, that's safe, right? Like that's not going to be the, that's not going to get banned. That was the only thing I had to worry about. Now here we are. The bet was what to get banned in standard. So what have I got? Uh, it's June. I've got th- about three months to go. It has to not get banned for three months, and if I if it gets banned in standard, then I lose, and I have to give him in-game currency uh, when the game, you know, and the next patch comes out. But I was so I'm like, okay, next if it got banned, I'm good, I'm done, I don't have to worry about anything. And now it's like, oh, sh- crud, is this actually going to get banned? I mean, they they can do it because it's rotating in the fall anyway. So if they want people to continue playing standard on Arena and Magic Online, they may feel cornered into it because they need that money to keep flowing yeah. so if they have to if they have to ban some shit in paper that doesn't really matter to anybody anymore i mean dealers aren't se- selling paper copies of wilderness reclamation to standard players that's for sure nope. so they can't they're not going to be bitching too loudly they got bigger things to worry about so i could easily see them take a take a broad strokes approach to quote-unquote fixing standard in the next month or so if the stats still require it after M21. Yeah, that is pretty obnoxious too, because when I made that bet, how could I have known that they were going to print the best, the 10 best Simic cards they've ever made all in a row? Like, come on, that's not fair. Well, I was right. Wilderness Reclamation was safe and not that big of a deal, but then they went and printed, you know, all these stupid cards. Ah, it's garbage. Well, and and that, actually, that comment actually leads us into some interesting analysis about the modern and pioneer challenges from this week. 
Um, one of the issues with them redirecting everything to Arena for the highest level of play, competitive play is that Pioneer Modern Legacy uh, trophies, like number of people, trophies are, you know, how many times people have won leagues, challenges, and super qualifiers. Well, the super qualifiers are gone from Magic Online at present, and there's supposed to be some new announcement about them. And the challenges are still running, but have been running with less people. It looks like people are a little adrift in terms of feeling any kind of impetus to participate in these other formats that are not present on Arena, since all the action's over there. And there's another big issue. When they announced Pioneer, one of the reasons that I advanced the premise that it was going to have to uh, inevitably replace Modern was that I felt the card pools would eventually overlap too much, given how many sets they already shared, and that they had only banned a very small number of cards, chiefly a, chief among them being the Fetchlands, from uh, from Pioneer and while leaving them in Modern. And one of the ways by which that prediction can come true has been building and building steam all year long, which is that if they keep pushing the power curve super high and all of the best uh, blue-green cards of all time were printed within the last 12 months, it's going to lead to a place where both Modern and Pioneer are going to be playing all of these pushed power uh, level cards that are all from the same era and the formats are going to converge even quicker yeah and we're and we are seeing that play out so over in the pioneer challenge we have blue black inverter and soul artifact blue white yorion planeswalker control red white burn underworld breach combo blue white spirits vampires and salt eye midrange over in the modern challenge you have blue red storm uh, three dredge decks, salt eye control, green red ponza, dredge, and red white burn. So, obviously, some of these decks are very unique to their respective formats. Underworld breach combo, big and pioneer, not so big and modern. Uh, dredge only really available in modern, so there's no overlap there. But you're seeing salt eye control builds with a lot of the same cards. You're seeing blue white control builds with a lot of the same cards. Salt eye control builds with a lot of the same cards. Um, red white burn. Uh, shares a lot of the same cards and as time goes on and more and more of these decks pop up that can share that can slot into both formats that convergence will continue and i i predict that within two years it's going to the the difference between the two formats will be a handful of decks will divide the two and it will seem very silly to be supporting both well, at this point, even saying two years seems almost foolish. I mean, you know, Pioneer was announced uh, in September, right? And I feel like we're already rapidly approaching a situation where the card pool is so similar between them that it's a problem. And, you know, given that we know we're halfway through this year, um, you know, we've seen M21. It feels like this is honestly, I think M21 is a little lower on the power level than we all expected. But still got some juicy ones in it. We'll see what this fall what this fall could bring. I mean, w- within a year of Pioneer coming out, by the time you get we get to what is it Zendikar that's coming out uh, this fall, right? Um, by the time we get there, we could be looking at this and going, well, these are like seventy percent the same format because they've printed so many good cards in the last year. Probably a good time to shout out the rumor that was floating around online this week that Zendikar will feature. Uh, a new f- set of flip cards. 
some of which may include lands that that can that are well cards that are lands on one side and permanents on the other and you can choose which side to play hmm that's that's an interesting way to go with the the dual-sided cards definitely seems within the realm of possibility leads me to wonder whether we're about due for a good dual cycle the fact that they gave us scry lands in two of the last three sets and gave us tri lands that were mostly focused at edh and are going to see a a smattering of play in constructed formats has me thinking that zendikar being you know the original home of the zen fetches um They've told us we are not getting them there. We suspect that we are probably getting them as box toppers. Um, there was a rumor going around that the that the fetches are actually going to be only available in collector boosters for Zendikar. But that sounds like broken telephone to me. I would guess that it's closer to what they did with the Godzilla cards for Ikoria, where you could get them either in... Um, via box toppers for booster boxes. You buy a full booster box, then you get you got one random Godzilla uh, variant. In Japanese boxes, they were just in the boxes. And then in collector boosters, you had a shot at them again. But I think that the foil ones were only in collector boosters because the box toppers were all non-foil. I'm pretty sure that's correct. So I could easily see them doing something similar with Zendikar where there's a similar to what they did with the expeditions. There is a short set of lands that are not going to be legal and standard, but are available as box hoppers for Zendikar three. That would make the set sell very well. And then in the collector boosters, maybe they give you access to foil skeleton turns that you can't get via the box toppers. <laughs> I, that doll seems fairly reasonable uh, in terms of an, a distribution method, although I could see them putting them only in collector's boosters, honestly. I don't think that that's... I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that I, I don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility. It, it does push more and more money towards a smaller product that is lighter, requires less overhead from a printing press perspective, and plays into the other rumor we've heard that the uh, Double Masters VIP packs that are 35 cards for $100 um, are going to be more, have a higher print run than Double Masters booster boxes. Uh, We talked about that last week. Um, And in theory, the basis for that decision is that the margins are so insanely good on the $100 packs, they want to push them really hard. Now, if they've decided that collector boosters, you know, they want to try to wring some additional money out of that, then making the Zen Fetch is only available in them as a way to go. But I... There's so much value in making the the Zen Fetch is one of a number of box toppers you could get. I have trouble believing that they're going to bypass that. Um, they, they've shown a reluctance to put things in collector boosters that are only there. It has been, you know, for instance, for uh, Core 21, it's just the extended arts, the the rares and mythics that are not otherwise handled based on the uh, reprint showcase treatment, the Teferi variants, and, and so forth. The... 
there's not really anything too too special on the collector booster side um other than the extended arts so my thinking is that they probably do something along those lines and then it's going to be actually gives a lot if they do that and if they keep really cheap bad lands out of the mix um in the box toppers it adds a lot of ev to regular booster boxes if that's true i mean i i don't think average will be like 60 bucks a box topper but even if it's 20 dollars a box topper then your 90 dollars boxes are 70 bucks that's a nice place to be well sure if you're paying 90 bucks a box and your average you know the average value of that slot is twenty dollars i agree that's a big chunk of that box value and when you want to buy product it doesn't you don't need a lot to push you over the edge most likely so just that alone is like oh if i buy the box like i roughly get 20 bucks back then i only have to find 70 how could i not buy this uh that that's a good angle for them for sure and it does kind of fulfill there. We're printing the card, but we're not putting it in normal boosters. That seems, I guess, I mean, it, it certainly seems like a reasonable way for them to go. Although I think people will still hate that as their reprint. Oh, yeah. Strategy. Hugely. Almost, almost no matter what variation of this it is. The only situation where I think people would have been like prof level satisfied would be if the fetches ended up in the rare slot in Commander Legends. <laughs> which which was always a possibility, but has, you know, for those of us that track the stats on this stuff, that's a real EV challenge because you're putting a lot of money into, I think it's a $7 booster pack, I want to say, with Commander Legends, if I'm not okay. mistaken. I don't, I don't think they're $4 boosters. I'll have to go back and double check that for next week. But uh, I think that that is a mid-priced set, if I'm not mistaken. And putting those five fetches in the rare slot there would have been challenging. It also doesn't really make any sense because if you're wizards, why do you want to put fetches, which are so good at selling things in a product that you're already not going to have any problem selling like that set definitely does not need any help. (laughs) And they don't, they don't, they don't fit like, like you're doing that just because players desperately, you desperately want to let people have their fetch lands, but they just, they don't fit what the product is trying to do at all when you could instead be printing a really specific and interesting land cycle that you could never get away with in an, you know, a standard legal set because it's very EDH focused land. Mm. Yeah. So we'll see how it all plays out. We don't have any, you know, official confirmation or anything. This is all just whispers and, and, and back channel dialogue, but my guess is that some something like that is in the works for Zen three, and if the rest of that set is solid, um, that could be pretty pretty sweet. It's also going to be interesting to see how far they push the marketing bait on it because Zen three is pretty much the first set that had a six month warning signal on COVID. So when they started talking about that internally, it was probably in March, and you got March, April, May, June, July, August, September, end of September, and then October. So previews will be middle of september i think for zen 3 if i'm not mistaken and they've had just enough time that if they wanted to if they were like oh wow we got to make sure our fall set sells what can we do about it really juiced box toppers would be a way to go when did i guess i'd have to go back to the to the records and see when they talked about fetch is coming this year but not in booster packs that decision seems like pretty big to be making like, I mean, yes, I guess they could have made that in time to impact the Zenicar 
printing, but that seems like a relatively large decision to be making, and they would have had to make it very quickly. I'm not suggesting that because of COVID, they added fetches. I'm suggesting that because of COVID, they might have changed the product configuration or uh, drop rates or what have you. Like you could, you could say you could have originally planned to have 30 possible lands in the box toppers. And maybe you, the extreme would be to go to just the five fetches. So every Zen three gets you an enemy fetch. Um, who knows where they will land in between those two goalposts, or even if there's just something completely different going on that we're not aware of. But suffice to say, it'll be an interesting fall. I, I agree. It'll be, I'm, I am curious about how magic shapes up later this year. What with we're finally going to be hitting the point in time where wizards could make decisions based on COVID and how will the sets be adjusted for that? Man, that is, I'm trying to imagine what they would have been talking about in March. You know, what did they know? Given the information the public had in March, how would they be making decisions at that point in time? Well, we already, we already know that for instance, Ikoria collector boosters are significantly rarer than Theros collector boosters were. And that decision was probably made based on how how glutted the supply chain got on Theros Collector Boosters. But the fact that they were able to be nimble enough on that, more on the, you know, we, we found the limit and made too many. So now we're going to dial it back to the right number. And that worked because whatever number they've dialed it back to, Ikoria Collector Boosters are... 250 plus in the US right now. Our pro traders are picking them up this week in Europe at about 190 or so. And that would be a would not even be a good price on the Theros ones. I've gotten the Theros ones as low as 135, but TCG player is like 260 or 265 or something right now in our Corea collector booster boxes. There's just isn't that many out there. And it's entirely possible that Core 21 is using an even smaller allocation. Yeah, could be. So Zendikar, well. Zendikar being like the the understanding is that the collector boosters are probably being handled in a smaller printing press factory. So and it, with more of a just in time model. So meaning that they have they don't need as much setup and lead time to get the product produced and into the supply chain. And if that's true, then they can make decisions on those products more flexibly than they can with their mainstream stuff. So Zendikar 3 could be a set where they really wanted to sell 40,000 units of the collector boosters or something, but because of COVID, they've just decided, you know what, these aren't selling as well as we need them to, so we're only going to produce 24,000. In which case, anything that is short printed versus the 10-year average for Magic, like the, the... running 10-year average, that eventually we get past COVID and get back to normal and then things take off again. It's like Lorwyn Block all over again, as we've talked about a few times. It's going to be anything in short supply. <laughs> like When we get to specs this week, we'll be talking about Somerset Mythics under COVID, and I'll tackle it in a bit more detail, I guess. Well, I will say that I, I am definitely interested in Ikoria and M21 cards on a longer time frame that is for sure and i do think that you know that's that's if you look out two or three year horizon some of those are probably going to be real spicy 
Um, but okay, I feel like we probably touched on the metagame <laughs> and the, the meta metagame at, at, at large here, unless there's anything specific, specific left that you want to cover. I'll, I'll tell you this much. No new archetypes in Pioneer or Modern. This is all understood stuff. Yeah. Which is, yeah, not too surprising, I think, right now. All right, so moving on to top paper movers this week. Hundreds of cards on the move. <clears throat> Some vendors were kicking back and forth pictures of their TCG player shopping carts this week on Twitter. $5,000 here, $10,000 there. People Wait, have been their ta- shopping carts? Yes. Um, so if you're wondering where all these cards are going, in part, they're going to players because players are bored at home and building EDH decks and what have you updating their cubes and and so forth the hobby side of magic is definitely uh, a saving grace right now i think my my i'm having my third best month of sales ever for magic um and the only month that topped it was may 2019 because i sold i spotted the japanese war boxes earlier than most and had a setup to get dozens of boxes into the u.s before supply showed up so minus that, this month would probably be better. Um, but these, but vendors are having trouble because they they can't run buy lists on the floor of GPs. That doesn't exist. They still need cards. They still have their own sales to service, and so they're going to get cards where they need to. And the more you know, profit focused folks in the community, the people that are running businesses that pay their bills are going to get out there and they smell blood in the water. There's no place to resupply 7th edition foils. There is no place to resupply reserve list cards. There is all this stuff that already is challenging to get into your buy list, even in the best of times, is even more so right now. And that is, by and large, the kind of stuff that is drying up fast. You know, key key EDH staples that haven't been printed for a while and don't look like they have an imminent reprint anytime in the next few months. Um, and then all of this supply challenged older stuff, just drying up, drying up, drying up. Yeah. It does make me wonder about, uh, like just going in and cleaning out seventh edition foils because like, where are they possibly going to come from at this point? Well, and like Rudy did a, 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 a video last week where he was showing off a whole bunch of foil final fortunes he bought. I'm pretty sure from the foil final fortune guy from Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, buddy. You got there. Yeah. Yeah. I got to track him down and ping him and see what is, what his deal structure looked like, because I would imagine Rudy drove a pretty hard bargain to take on like a hundred or 200 copies of the same seventh edition foil. That is, you know, not a card everybody needs or wants. Oh, we had that Um, many. Oh, we had tons, tons and tons. Um, I think I saw Equilibrium and Final Fortune. I, I don't watch Rudy videos start to finish. I can't stomach it, but I do at least get the gist of what's going on in case it's relevant to what we're doing. Um, and it, it it jumped out at me as there can't be more than one of this guy that had all the Final Fortune foils. Um, so, and there was a whole bunch of 7th edition foils that were on the move this week that didn't make it onto our list here because just take my word for it that even the crappy stuff, like the dollar and two dollar seventh edition foils, are moving up to the two fifty, three dollars, four dollars, five dollar range, because people are not seeing any reason to hold back. 
anybody who collects 7th edition foils and wants to finish a set, which is generally the goal there, um, is going to have to buy them from one of you. <laughs> so, and again, not easy to bring them back in. And then these vendors bragging about these huge carts they're buying signifies that, you know, the, nothing is likely to change anytime soon because those those guys are posting their stock at full retail plus right you know you, you might have a vendor who is buying up a bunch of four dollar cards on tcg player and they're planning on selling them on amazon for 750 you know like for me that's not the kind of play i'm interested in for them it's a volume play they're they have a assembly line type situation they can package lots of two three five dollar cards profitably and get them out the door their margins are a lot smaller than mine but their um, total revenue is a lot bigger so you know a volume play is not where i want to be because it's not my main gig and i you know don't have that kind of time but i respect what they're up to and it helps to round out people's understanding of what actually happens in the magic economy and how there are actually a lot more you know, gears in motion than people may realize. That helps explain why prices move in a hurry under certain circumstances. Well, and boy, I'm just thinking if you're a vendor, it doesn't even matter if it's necessarily the greatest use of your time. If you've, if you're used to the GP grind where you're going to 20 or 30 or 40 GPs a year, the amount of time that takes up is significant. If you do back to back GPs, you know, if I have a GP this weekend and then I'm also going to one the following weekend, that's my entire week. Like, it's not like that's just a weekend thing, you know. You spend several days prepping for the GP and then traveling to the GP and then traveling back from the GP and then processing what you had from the GP. You end up um, really on back-to-back GP weekends, probably without enough time to take care of everything you were tr- you needed to do. And you have to take weeks off in order to have enough time to process what happened. So all of that said, you have these people who were putting a a ton of time into managing their GP presence and and the overhead involved with that process who now have all that time back. So even if, you know, buying cards at TCG low and then selling them on Amazon for a couple bucks more, isn't like the greatest use of their time or money. It's like, well, they don't have anywhere else to spend it. And if that's what was paying their mortgage, uh, you know, what are they supposed to do? You know, they, this is this is how they're going to make their money and, and get their bills paid. Exactly. So uh, let's get into these cards that were on the move. Uh, Mistress Factory Winter Edition out of Antiquities 240 to 360. We saw this version pump during crypto. Uh, and I think that charts from that era of magic a couple years back are probably going to look a lot, very much the same. I think the... I think it was 2017, so late 2017 versus late 2020, Magic's probably going to see a lot of the same things happen. 7th edition foils, reserve list stuff, uh, old cards, uh, original versions, all that stuff's going to be on a real steep curve, and then if Magic gets back to normal and big events kick off again in 2021, then you would expect to see some retracing as the market fills some supply back in. Um, But by and large, many of these cards will hold a higher plateau because it will be very difficult for the supply on some of these things to overwhelm demand on the go forward. Um, Commentary. Uh, Yeah. I was thinking that all all these price gains and some of the more esoteric stuff is 
I'm not going to call it temporary, but the conditions are temporary. The lack of GPs is temporary. So the pieces are in place right now to drive prices nuts on stuff like, you know, these antiquities, mistress factories, and weird 7th edition foils. Once the GP grind starts back up, we'll be in a position, you know, the old distribution models that kind of kept them at the prices they were at before. I don't expect a significant loss in value for any of this stuff. Although I do think, um, I don't think that they'll really drop in price so much as they'll just sort of languish for a little while, um, longer than they would have otherwise. Um, so I guess that, you know, I, I would expect next year to, to find ourselves in a situation where a lot of this stuff might be a little more sedentary just because there was so much kind of forced action on it right now. Um, but again, at the same time, we're not going to see these prices haul all the way backwards to where they were before because prices on these types of cards don't really move backwards very much. Yeah, it, it's tricky when, you know, a card came out 25 years ago. <laughs> And your average player might have been playing for eight years or something. If that long. And, and that's committed players. That's not average of all Magic players. Yeah. Um, all right. So Gilded Drake is a reserve list card that does matter in EDH. And it's been targeted for sure lately. Um, in theory, going from 140 to 220. I think I bought copies at 60 not so long ago. Somebody sent me an offer at 70 today and I just laughed. Um Clearly, I set up my uh, minimum offer incorrectly on eBay. <laughs> the, uh, you know, people are going to be out there trying right. to scoop bargains, but there's just no impetus to be selling these at, at bargain basement pricing at this point. I would probably accept something in like maybe the 150 to 160 range, but I can wait for my buyer at this point. Yeah, I respect the guy's hustle. Yeah, yeah. G- g- give, g- I give him credit for the effort. This is nuts. And McGilda Drake is so expensive. I remember these were like 30 bucks and that was pricey. And like back in the day, you know, this is one of these like Amazon or Google, sh- you know, stock situations. If Gilded Drake's were probably two bucks uh, bulk bin stuff back before Commander was a thing. And oh, yeah. yeah. If you were the kind of person that was randomly collecting a couple hundred of these, you'd be could pay your kids way through college. Yeah, if you somehow had bought 300 of these at $2 and then forgot you owned them until they were 200 Yeah. Um, Tolarian Academy, I see. Uh, jumping from 53 to 88. Uh, another reserve list card. Um, restricted and Vintage, interestingly enough. Uh, it's banned in EDH, too, if memory serves me. Yep. But, you know, no, probably only maybe three or four of these sold at any GP, I would guess. I feel like that's like, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Probably only less than 10 sold back to vendors at any given GP, I would presume. I, uh, I'd also want to see the percentage of players that buy this on a GP floor thinking they can put it in their commander deck and not realizing that it's banned. I mean, I got to wonder how many people are willing to spend $50 on this card and don't know enough to know that they can't do that. If, if you've been playing commander for a little while, six months, 12 months, 18 months or something, and you've never come across it, but you just got beat up by a Gaia's Cradle deck and you spot this card, you might be like, oh, I could put this in my Brea deck. It'd be amazing. And it's 50 bucks, so obviously the, the vendor agrees it's a good card. Yeah, you would think a banned card in EDH would be worthless, right? I, of this nature. 
I, I can con- I can construct a scenario where somebody buys this card for EDH in my head, but I do wonder how often it really comes to pass. Bottom line, there's not really very m- many places you can play this viably, so it's more of a collector's no. item than anything else, and it's being targeted here because it's reserve list and looks powerful. I would say it's a cube card. If I really would, I would imagine it would be my other than collectors, cube is probably my what I would assume is a primary impetus for owning yeah. this card. Yeah, and I mean, total number of cubes in North America is a lot lower than other things. Like yeah. Total number of commander decks or whatever. Yeah, probably a little bit of a difference there. Uh, Roalesque Apex Hybrid out of War of the Spark, uh, going from 225 to $4, 70% plus gains. New commander uh, death trigger rules, driving that one. Ante's Hovel out of Lorewind, going from 12 to 24 I've sold a few of those this week. Uh, Conspicuous Snoop. Uh, makes goblin decks a lot better all of a sudden. Um, gives them a combo out, and uh, so and they often want some black goblins involved. So Anti's Hovel is on the agenda. Nameless Race out of the dark, going from two fifty to five hundred percent gain. I would guess that this is on. We're going to talk about this more in the fourth segment, but people are probably guessing that this will get banned on the basis of racism or related issues. That was the only thing that I thought about when I looked at it. And and if you're specking on shit on that basis, shame on you. Like, yeah, <laughs> fuck right off I, with that. I, yeah, I, you know, I, so James messaged me that like in the middle of recording that he wanted to talk about the racism thing, the bit cards banned because of racism. And like, we didn't really get a chance to talk about it beforehand. And I had thought about it earlier and I'm like, I don't even know if I want to talk about that on the cast, but I, 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 I suppose we can acknowledge it, but condemn it at the same time. Um, well, but, sounds like sounds like we have a conversation to be had, so let's get to that in a bit. Okay. The uh, Goblin Recruiter at Divisions, 250 to 6 bucks, Conspicuous Snoop. Keep in mind that Recruiter is only um, Vintage and Commander legal, not Modern or Legacy legal, so don't buy it on that basis. Uh, Abeyance at a Weatherlight is a reserve list card that does, sees a modicum of play. Five to fifteen dollars. Borrow Signet out of original Ravnica foils going from eight to twenty-five. That's a in white red, especially you need the ramp. So uh, an original EDH foil like that taking a jump is no big surprise to me. Um, the original Signet foils have flirted with this kind of situation for years. Uh, reparations out of Mirage going from $2 to 18 I'm wondering whether this is a presumed future ban situation as well, given that it shows a white person dropping off money to some black people. Uh, this is definitely in that realm. And did you see that meme going around with this card as well? No, but it, no, it was, it was, it was legitimately good. It was wizards takes the place of the missionary and he, they changed the flavor text, and they, they included some photoshopped images too. But the flavor text was "Sorry about your or, uh, like systemic racism and hiring practice." Here's some bans. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. It's good. It's a good one. Uh, uh, Army of Allah uh, went in from Arabian Nights went from seven to seventy dollars. If you believe that, on the back of it being banned for. Uh, in wizards were words um being racist or culturally offensive uh we banned the speculation on and sale and related discussion in our own discord almost immediately um on the recommendation from a member uh which makes perfect sense that we've all had these sitting around and 
on a card by card basis, you can certainly debate uh, the merits of what part portions of the card are offensive and why. But <clears throat> I'm more than happy to lean into the scenario and say that while incomplete, it is still a reasonable step forward and just cut off any support to profit uh, off of these cards since well, we, lose, we lose so little and stand to gain so much. Yeah, I, I will. We, we'll, let's talk about this more when we get there. Um, but we know that that's why the card is on the list right here. Uh, Honden of Infinite Rage foils out of Eternal Masters, uh, 75 cents to 750, which would be uh, pretty gross if that price sticks. And I, I, I don't got to be honest, I'm thinking it will. This is based on the new shrines in Magic 2021, um, as well as the the shrine legend sort of it's a card that's a legend not a commander but uh the options there anyways uh bagart harbinger uh 50 cents to six bucks uh out of the non-foil lorwin copies um i believe is that the only copy did they print this in modern masters i'm at a loss at the moment uh because i think they printed a couple of the other ones they did not that's what it was bagart harbinger did not end up in modern masters so the only copies are the uncommons from Lorwyn, and that is uh, pretty dang old magic terms these days. Uh, again, because of the conspicuous Snoop combo that you uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and finishing off the week, Mossfire Egg foils out of Odyssey a dollar to to twenty. Sure, Mossfire Egg for those of you who are curious, since I am as well, is a artifact for one two mana tap crack it add red green to your mana pool and draw a card so it Good. essentially you pay one mana to draw a card but you kind of take the long way to get there good luck with that spec yeah and i'm looking at this and I'm like I, I don't know just an old odyssey foil i suppose whatever the, the card at the top of this list every week is some new breed of ridiculous yeah 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 all right uh why don't you tell us about uh what's going on over on moto Plenty of cards on the move over there, mostly in the like 10 to 30% range, but a few broke out of the pack. Uh, Retrofitter, Foundry, and Bonder's Ornament are currently only available in Treasure Chests, I believe. Uh, and Retrofitter, Foundry went from 11 to 15 for 36% gains. And Bonder's Ornament, which apparently is a fresh staple in Popper, uh, went from twenty, almost 23 to $32. Um, mm. Not a card I had on my radar. As you said a, popper, right? Popper, yeah. and this card went to what price? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, not a card I had on my radar. Of course, popper is not much on my radar. Um, but I'm trying to get more up to speed on Magic Online. Uh, and the the defining uh, factor here is that these cards from the latest Commander decks um, are only the treasure chests. They don't release them as decks and people don't buy them as decks. And so you are at the mercy of whatever the drop rate is in the treasure chest. And that has proven uh, to be a recipe for quick increases in any of the cards that see even a reasonable amount of play. play. Mm. So moving right along here, we have General Kudro of Drenith. Uh, Ikoria Mythics, uh, the ones that are seeing play are on the move. So this is up uh, from about 750 to 1050 or so for 45% gains. Uh, Selfless Spirit out of Eldritch Moon going from 260 to $4. This is on the back of new spirits being revealed in M21, I would guess. People thinking that spirits decks 
and maybe Pioneer and Modern will be that much better. And then Conspicuous Snoop moved a card over here as well. Kikijiki Mirror Breaker of uh, Iconic Masters going from 340 or so to about 630 for about 86% gains. Um, we have not seen that movement in paper yet, although I have se- noticed people nibbling around the edges of the foils. Uh, that's interesting. I'm, I, I will admit to being a little surprised at how much conspicuous Snoop moved prices across the board this time around. Like, I, I, I'm surprised I, at, at, at how many cards both in paper and online have moved based on this card. I think it's the, because... The, the, the angle is just like the, mostly the modern combo, right? Right, but it, it, you can also run the same combo in EDH. So in, the yeah, yeah. the combination of the two is the sweet spot. Yeah, I. Yeah. This this I I kind of, it's kind of weird because I I don't doubt that these that people bought these cards, but I'm looking at this and like yeah, but who who out there is like oh I got to get my modern goblin. Co-. So this is not about moto, right? This is more about the paper stuff, but. But so maybe I'm bringing this up too late. But just like who out there is like, yeah, I got to get my conspicuous Snoop combo pieces for modern, which I can't play for six months. Like <laughs> you got plenty of time to figure out if this is gonna be good, buddy. Truth. Um, all right, so moving on to paper cards to watch segment three. Uh, disappointing if you don't have your contacts set up in Europe yet, because all of my picks are core twenty one cards that are on pre order in Europe way too cheap uh, versus their long-term price, even though I expect prices to come down further in both Europe and North America. Um, and it's this first one is especially funny because y'all get to kick, kick me in the teeth over the fact that when we first <laughs> talked about Chromatic Ori, I said, ah, well, yeah, it's pretty good, but how good is it? And then by the end of that episode, I was like, yeah, I guess it's sort of like Great Henge. And now this week I'm like, yeah, it's still not Great Henge, but... It is a colorless artifact that will appeal to Timmy's and Johnny's and can be played in a whole bunch of different kinds of decks. But more to the point, it's currently 11 or $12 on pre-order in North America and over in Europe, you can get it on in more like $4 to $5.50. And a small set summer mythic with EDH potential in a set where the land cycle is unexciting and COVID is probably suppressing sales and the print run, leads me to believe that this going, say, 5 to $12 for 140% gains in, say, 12 to 18 months is probably not ridiculous. I, I saw you put this into the cell earlier, and I'm like, oh, I got to give him shit about this. I'm like, nope, I'm going to wait and give him shit in segment three. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to wait and make sure it's on record. Uh yeah, this card is, I think, fantastic, and I think it's going to be, honestly, I think it's going to be still going to be bigger than you're giving it credit for. Um, it might not be a loud card, but I think it will be a widespread card. Uh, also, the play in Europe makes mostly makes sense. I mean, I can't imagine this is cheaper than five bucks in the U.S., you know, even if that ends up being the floor after the boxes hit hit the market and people crack them and sell whatever they don't want. I, you know, if they're pre-selling for 12 bucks right now, this isn't going to be really any cheaper than, 
than four or five at the absolute minimum. So pre-ordering these at five right now, if you have easy access to that market with a risk of maybe the, them dropping to $4 in the US in the worst case scenario, that seems like you're in good shape. And I especially like what these are going to look like down the road. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I said that you know I'm very interested in some of these Ikoria cards and M21 cards um, on the longer term because you know not only do you have the compounding impact, uh, especially the summer set, but also like the spring set, uh, COVID is just kind of going to cause all sorts of problems. And I think the comparison to Lorwin was actually probably very good um, that you made earlier. And Lorwin was generally one of the lowest points in Magic's modern history, basically since probably the modern border. I think Lorwin had the fewest number of players um, that it's ever had, Magic's ever had. Well, and then cars from that did really well over the long run because there just were so few of them in the market as the game picked up steam again, I imagine we'll end up in a similar situation here. It's a little different than that. It's not that Lauren was the lowest number of players we've ever had. It's that not relative ever. in modern magic. In modern magic, I'm not even sure it's that. It's it's that relative to the years on either side of it, it was the lowest sales. What? So so the. The whether or not that means that players had checked out of the game or they were annoyed by the fact that and, and it's really quaint in 2020 to discuss it in these terms, but believe it or not, they decided to instead of having three sets per year, have four sets per year. The the whole thing with Lauren Block was that it was four sets long. <laughs> instead uh, well, of instead of three. What that was yeah, but that was because they used to do three plus the core set. Plus, occasion, in, occasionally doing a core set. They didn't do it every year back then. It was it's every other year. Right, right, right. I, I, so what set do you think, or what time period do you think had worse sales since Modern Border, since Modern Border, so starting with basically Mirrodin, um, do you think had worse sales than like Eventide and Shadowmoor? So I think I think the easiest way to think of the Lorwyn period is that you picture this upward trending line on a graph and in the middle there somewhere, there's a blip where it drops down below its average, its average increase. That's lower run block. And that's why this, the cards from that those sets have been more prone to spikes over the years when they've become relevant. Um, not only did the, the block have a lot of stuff that ended up being relevant in EDH that wasn't relevant anywhere else, um, but it was also, there was less of each of the print runs for those sets because there was four of them instead of three. So my suspicion is that Wizards reduced, like aimed for the same total print run and printed less of, less of instead of. And then at the same time, sales weren't as good that year and maybe some players had dropped out of the mix. So nobody has exact statistics on any of this. It's just anybody will tell you that Lorwyn bulk is the best bulk and the hardest to find bulk. Oh yeah, like you're, you're, yeah. you're more likely to find revised cards from ten years before that than you are to find Lorwyn cards. Yes, that I mean that much I agree with. I actually sold a ton of Lorwyn bulk back. Like, oh, I have all these cards and I'm moving apartments and I don't want to carry them, so I'm just going to sell this pile of Lorwyn bulk for like I don't know fifty bucks or something. Ugh. Oh, God, I don't know. I can't talk about what was probably in there. Um, so so Chromatic Orrery, if it was a rare, I would just wait for it to bottom out hard. A lot. There's yeah. a, a, My third pick here is a rare from the set. It's currently available for about a dollar in Europe. And I'll probably look to dollar cost average it 
down towards 75 or 50 cents if I see the opportunity. Um, but the mythics, the mythics, summer mythics during COVID, that's a recipe for success. Um, now, I think the risk factor here is that people thinking this is at least medium to good in EDH could end up wrong. It could be a forgotten card. But if if we're right, <laughs> then it's probably 15 to $20 before it ever sees a reprint. And people that get in under five are going to look real smart. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. That I think if you're paying five dollars a copy for this, you got to be very happy. Uh, I think this type of opportunity on a brand new card that's so clearly going to be useful and played. It's not even like it's hard to even call it a spec because specking implies that I'm not sure if this card is going to be good or popular. And like I feel like. I, I can't be more confident about a card being good and popular in EDH than I am about this, really. So, at that price, I am a buyer. All right. So, talk to me about your first pick. So, I'm uh, I was looking across the board, poking around, seeing what people were excited about for EDH, and it looks like the shrines have caught a lot of people's attention. Um. You know, we haven't seen those in quite some time. Really, I think it was Kamigawa was really the only other time they were printed. So that has drawn a lot of attention. And I went to figure out what commander people would play with the new shrines. And it seems like the answer is pretty overwhelmingly Sasei Weatherlight Captain. So Sasei Weatherlight Captain is from Modern Horizons. She's a three mana white creature, two, two, um, she gets 1-1 one, one for every other, each color among legendary permanents you control. So if you have five, if you have a five color legend in play, she gets plus five, plus five. Um, and then the reason she, she is a five color commander because she has a five color activated ability, which is search your library for a legendary permanent card uh, with mana cost less than her power and put it onto the battlefield. Um, now that will be all of the shrines and Honedins will be legendary permanent cards because that's just the way they work. So she's going to be your commander for that deck. You can find foils of Sasei right now in Modern Horizons for about eight bucks, maybe a little under nine, depending on where you're shopping. Um, supply is definitely getting pretty light. We know EDH has been moving cards lately, and this is kind of a cool, funky new deck that people can build that's going to give you some, a little, I think, a little bit more creative application than you might get if you just built, you know, yet another green-white commander who puts counters on stuff. This one's kind of like, oh, this one's kind of interesting and nifty, and I can do something a little more fun with it than some of the other commanders. Um, Modern Horizons, which is what Sisei is from, has had several success stories lately, so we know that that set has matured pretty well. Um, and then we also have Commander Legends on the horizon. So even if, you know, the Shrine Commander deck doesn't really take off, and I'm not making, you know, I, I'm much less confident that the Shrine Commander deck is going to be anywhere near a thing as I am that, say, Chromatic Ori will be popular. Even if it's not that big of a thing, you still have Commander Legends later this fall, which is going to have a lot of legendary permanence in it which will further, uh, I think, improve Sasei's standing here. And I think she's going to end up being a pretty popular five-color commander overall. You know, if the, the alternative would be like um, uh, Golos, I suppose. But Golos is, I, I mean, he's still going to be very good, but Sasei seems very uh, more likely to be, I'm going to say, fun. So pick up foils around eight ish bucks, eight to $9. The supply is pretty low. I think you're probably good for 15, maybe even 20, depending on how well the shrine deck does and how well commander legends looks for you when all is said and done. I'm not sure 
how I would feel about this if inventory wasn't already munched on. Um, Modern Horizon rare foils, however, are significantly more rare than people are currently being um, attuned to expect. The foil drop rate that started with uh, Core 20 did was not present in Modern Horizons. We spoke last week about how you only get basically one foil rare or mythic per box, sometimes two. Um, so there aren't that many of any of the foil rares around. And again, these are coming out of $200 to $300 boxes, not $90 boxes. So they will naturally uh, accelerate into higher price points that much faster. The ramp from 8 to about 20 is already looking pretty good. Uh, there might be 30 or 40 copies online in North America that are in the way of this being a $20 card. Now, what if I told you over in Europe you can get these for 3 bucks? <laughs> Seems very, very good. I mean, this isn't the... I mean, yeah, right? If you're putting a cart together, there you go. Uh, this and Chromatic Ori. It's not like I was like, oh, the the, the Shrine deck is going to crush it and people are going to be... You know, that's going to be a huge deal and people are going to be all over it. It's more like, well, if people build this, what would they build? Oh, it's probably to say, oh, the stock and the slope looks very good. And if you look at it historically, like over the last couple months, it's been naturally increasing. Like this isn't just like it was $5 a week ago and then these got spoiled and now they're eight and you're trying to catch the tail up. It's like, no, they've been climbing the whole way. Uh, so I think this is just some putting a little bit of gas on the fire or even lighter fluid on the fire if you want to tone it down a little bit. If you snapped off Hondens earlier this week when the when the shrines were revealed for Core 21 and you got them cheap enough and you can put them together in a package and flip them on eBay or on Facebook or something to an EDH player, you're probably doing fine. Those are the kind of plays that could be flash in the pan and you don't really want to be caught holding 60 foil Honden of Life's web or whatever. You really want to just have a small handful, get out of them and move on to the next thing. Um, but... If you can get these at eight, great. If you're building that cart in Europe and you want to pick up some at three or four, there's almost no risk there, because whether yeah. it's whether it's this <laughs> that sets off Cisse or something else, she sees a modicum of EDH play already. There's something like 1,800 decks with her as the commander before the shrines showed up. I mean, the TCG low is like 819 or something. So if you're buying them for three dollars in Europe, yeah, it's hard to imagine you lose on this. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the demand profile is going to be like if the if the shrine thing doesn't go well. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing where I don't want 50 of it, but I'll take three or four um, yeah. at that price in Europe. And again, if, if you're frustrated listening to me picking things in Europe and thinking, how does this apply to me? It's pretty simple. You should be a pro trader. <laughs> Being a pro trader pays for itself very easily through these kinds of opportunities, because whether or not we are organizing a group buy from Europe or one of our European members is hooking you up, or some vendor we work with in Europe is is providing a bouncing service. Um, this is how you build your collection more cheaply. This is how you get into speculation. This is how you build some inventory. It doesn't take much to make up the uh, measly $80 a year that it costs you to be involved. Yeah, all you have to do is buy a pile of sissets and flip them. <laughs> all right, what's your next card here? So one of the other cards that looks way too cheap to me over in Europe is uh, one of the other mythics. Discontinuity was revealed. And I can't remember if it was we knew about this last week or if this was one of the, th the cards we saw this week. Um, but Discontinuity is basically um, ends the turn 
for three and three blue as an instant. Mythic and uh, Magic 2021. And as long as it's your turn, the spell costs two and two blue less to cast. So if you want to end the turn on your turn, it's one and a blue. This card seems innocuous until you start thinking about all the various reasons you might want to end the turn on your turn. When you end the turn, it is like split second. You exile all spells and abilities from the stack, including this card. The player whose turn it is discards down to their maximum hand size. Damage wears off in this turn and until end of turn effects end. So it clears stacks. So if you're trying to do something on your turn and somebody, you know, you attack and they try to wipe all your creatures at instant speed or target one of your creatures with a removal spell or do something else that you don't like. They put an effect on the stack that they can't repeat in response to what you're doing. You could just discontinuity and cut yourself off from the rest of your turn, but finish things up. Probably more to the point, you could also just be using this to combo off. If you had something where it was like, if you get to such and such phase of your turn, you lose the game, but otherwise you get some massive benefit, then you can use discontinuity to just end your turn before that phase ever comes around and bingo bango. Is that is that the is that the end of the sale? <laughs> I, I'm I'm saying that it is a awkward combo piece that will probably find some home for reasons we can't yet see. Well, there's um, God, what is it? Uh, so, yeah, Sundial of the Infinite um, is a similar effect. Do you remember this card? Yep. Yeah, and that's that's several that's a several dollar rare at this point uh, with a similar effect, and it's it's an artifact with uh, one mana and the turn, but you can only do it on your turn. Um, and and in EDH, for instance, where you have access to more mana in general, the six mana is not so onerous necessarily. You're playing some kind of big blue artifact deck or whatever, and you might want to shut down a whole attack phase. You might want to stop somebody from comboing off. You might want to do any number of different things. And I think people will discover over time that as a rare, this is not that exciting, but as a mythic, there will be enough utility in it long-term to make it a thing. Now, that said, the last time I remember looking at a card like this from a spec perspective was something like Glorious End Mm -hmm. in Amonkhet block, and that never really got anywhere. So... If you want to look at it through that lens, if you're choosing between chromatic orrery or discontinuity, orrery is the proven use case. Yeah. And there's I, and their I prices don't... are fairly similar in Europe. The European price on discontinuity is about $4 as well. And I'd pick it long term, say over two years, to go from 4 to 8 or 10 by listing it like 550 to 6 or something. A discontinuity is a card that has some potential um i think it's like you said it's a little more challenging than chromatic ori i do see the use cases um you know in the same way that sundial of the infinite has its use cases in in commander i like i do like that this gives you the flexibility to do it on other players turns which isn't a function you're probably going to take advantage of that often but it means it's elevated from strictly combo piece to also being able to irritate um, your opponents kind of and, and get value when it's not working so you're if it's in a deck where your your good use case scenario is using it to shut down a very obnoxious trigger um or or, or some other unpleasant event on your turn 
Um, it's, it's good in that case, but where it deviates from Sundial of the Infinite is once you start to get over the, the mana hump, um, and even if you're talking about like modern, once your six land is in play, now your opponent does, you know, you don't have your combo together, but your opponent on taps on their turn and then you just end their turn. And like, yeah, you paid six mana to do it, but you paid six mana for a, essentially a time walk, um, which is not the worst thing to be doing in plenty of games. So I think that additional angle certainly helps. Um, and I agree that, you know, I would rather cap out my, my chromatic orries at five before I'm buying in on chromatic or discontinuities at, you know, three fifty or four, but I don't think it's a bad idea to grab a couple for sure. Yeah. I, I, this one is definitely more speculative in nature potentially with higher upside than a lot of other things, but probably not higher than chromatic orrery. So the nice thing about speculative cards is they're more fun. There is a fun factor <laughs> to all this for sure. You know, it, if, if there if was it, more, there's the, uh, there's, is the possibility that this actually manages to show up in a deck in standard like next year. And like when paper results resume, this could actually end up being a thing. I don't really know well, where it would be a are, thing. Are, are, are they leaving Wilderness Reclamation in play? Because for a couple of months here, discontinuity on your opponent's turn is kind of nasty. Yeah, that's actually legitimate. And really the biggest concern there is just the fact that no one can play paper magic. But that would that would probably be not an unfair use of the card at least you know maybe one or two copies i'm not sure i don't i'd have to take a closer look at standard cards to see if there was any value to ending the turn on your turn ultimately you have to go back and look at the the price graph and play pattern of something like time stop because we've had an end the turn card before this isn't the first time and that was a six mana blue spell that didn't have any flexibility in how it was cast right uh, time stop was five. Uh, oh yeah, you're right. Five. Uh, no, it's six. It's six. Time stop. Yep. Not time warp. Time stop. Uh, time stop. This is exactly the card I had in my head. I could have sworn this was five mana. Yeah. That is some uh, which call it. What's the term for that? Uh, Mandela effect. That is some Mandela effect. <laughs> so foils of time stop from tenth edition are eighty dollars currently. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, and the non-foils are three dollars and thirty cents. So, did if you know the, that the, foil if the time being able to play? Special? So, if these are are they why? Tenth uh, edition rare foils did not have rules reminder text. So, on the non-foil version of Time Stop, you have a huge block of text explaining what end the turn is. But if you have a foil, it doesn't say any of that. It just oh. says end the turn. Interesting. Mm-hmm. They should reconsider. They should reconsider that. That's kind of a sexy well, differentiator for foils, I actually. F- didn't they do that on the extended arts this set? I feel like I saw extended arts that didn't have the rules text. Huh. I'm gonna have to double check that. The which 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 puts an additional impetus on buying extended art cards because now they look prettier because it gets rid of all that baggage. Bottom line, Time Stop isn't really worth anything. It's like a $3 card as a as a rare that was printed twice, once in Champions of Kamigawa and once in 10th edition. So if you believe discontinuity is only like minor league better than that, then feel free to dodge. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I, I can see, you know, I understand why people might not want to bite the, go in for it on that, but I, I can appreciate the allure. Oh, do I appreciate the allure. 
All right, hit me up with your next pick. Yeah, so is that really is that the reason that I get to stay on the cast is I know really interesting little tidbits like the 10th edition foil stuff? Like that's mostly why I'm still on the cast is I just have those little pieces of information. I mean, there's a lot more going on, but that certainly helps. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the other card I went looking for, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, making a point of just looking through for kind of, I'm going to say, low-hanging EDH fruit. And this week is no different. It provided uh, Crows and Grip. So Crows and Grip, a lot of you are probably familiar with. It is, uh, it's in 35,000 EDA truck decks. It's a three mana green instant uh, destroy target artifact or enchantment, and it is split second. So no one can respond. You put Crows and Grip on the stack, and all of you just stop. I am destroying this thing. Uh, it remains today a top card of the month, something like, I don't know, top 50 cards play, put into EDA truck decks this month. So still quite popular. Um, currently the modern masters, God, now they have modern horizons makes this more tricky saying the correct one. The modern masters one foils are just under $5 right now, I believe. Um, the time spiral foils, which is the original printing are like 15 and there's not, you know, there's like five or six of those. There also is an FNM foil, but those are honestly, the art is probably worse. Uh, probably hard to find those not warped at this point. Um, there are about 10 ish copies of the FNM foils also right around like six bucks, but I think these are probably all a pretty good angle. Um, you know, this is an extremely popular card in the format. You're getting a foil at five-ish dollars. I think you can probably look to out at around 10, maybe even 15, depending on how things shake out over the course of this year. Um, and supply is definitely on your side with, I would say, probably fewer than 30 foil copies between both the FNM foils and the modern Masters foils. So uh, some opportunity there as well. I suppose that this could get reprinted in like the green product, but split seconds. Yeah, but I, I yeah, it just, of all the stuff that we've talked about, like this doesn't feel like a really good target for that. It's just not a particularly interesting card to reprint in that type of place. You know, if you had told me it was going to be Modern Horizons 2, like that I'd be much more likely to believe, but split second also makes it a little trickier to just throw anywhere. This this one has near near term danger. Both from the Commander green Legend. product, yeah, and the Commander, and Commander Legends. You think? Yeah, because we saw it only once this year in Commander twenty twenty. It wasn't in Mystery Boosters. They they may well go back to the well with a foil version between one of those two things. So I think at minimum, I would probably go pretty shallow here until I saw what this list is for the green Commander product, and then you could probably roll the dice on whether you've got a time, chance to out a handful of copies before commander legends now after commander legends if we make it to almost christmas and there's and there's this has not shown back up well they're probably going to be drained before then because that's just the way things are going but if they were lying around at this price come november and i had seen the full set list for commander legends and it had never shown up then i'd be much more inclined to be picking up copies when's the the um green product come out uh it's gonna be really soon isn't it's it it's gotta be soonish i think it's within the month commander uh green i mean they have to put some less interesting lower value cards in that product it can't just be 15 bangers so like maybe this is what they opt for because it's useful and people want copies of the card and it's not 40 dollars. but uh 
I guess I guess that's a possibility. Honestly, it didn't even occur to me that that was a threat until I was halfway through talking. I'm like, oh, I guess that could be in there. Just doesn't strike me as the type of card that people like. It's just so easy to put in an unsexy slot because it's an unsexy card. Commander Collection Green, it's called. It's a green thing. I'm sticking with the green thing. And the release date is September 4th. Oh. So it's not so wait, they're doing they're doing that and then doing Commander Legends like a month later? In November. Well, the Commander Collection green thing is just like a like a J spellbook kind of thing, right? Like it's just eight cards. I guess yeah, I guess is it it's only eight though. I don't know, that's a little surprising. I just so they're doing the eight card green product into the fall set into Commander Legends. It fills the it, yeah, it fills the November. gap between it fills the little gap between Double Masters and Zendikar 3. Hmm. I I, mm. I would have if you'd asked me I would have said it was a July release so September yeah, 4th I, date so it surprised me. I thought it was July too. Well, whatever. All right. What are you uh, wrapping up with? All right. So here's a rare that I think is going to be it's going to get low, but it's already so low in Europe that I see very little danger in getting in on it. I'm talking about Double Vision. This is the card and of course at 21 that it's 3 and 2 red, 5 mana enchantment. Whenever you cast your first instant or sorcery spell each turn, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. This, to me, reads like something that's just going to be in every Is It Commander deck from here to eternity. It's going to end up reprinted into dust over 10 years because they'll put it in a bunch of different Commander decks and, and other products. And But you probably still get a gap here for a couple of years where, if you pick these up, currently they're available in Europe at 30 cents. I do not have too much trouble imagining that 18 months from now, given that this is coming out of a core set, I might be able to buy list these for 2 to $3. 30 cents is very cheap for a card that is going to be very popular for red. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out, this is in the, uh, the I, I don't want to say danger zone, this is in the reviled zone of 30 cents to $3 specs, you know, that like, Sure, it's a 900% gain, but like it's so annoying to capitalize on. But you go into this eyes wide open and know that you're buying a pile to buy list. I think that's totally, it's completely valid. Just be aware that that's what your plan is. That's the key here, right? This is not, it might be retail four or five by the time Core 21 supply dries up. But I'm planning here, if I'm going to pick up 100 copies of this at 30 cents a piece, I'm looking to buy list. Honestly, anything over a dollar because I send, I mean, I haven't been sending buy list in lately, but eventually I will be. And, you know, pulling out something that you bought, you spent, you know, 30 bucks on and then turning it into 100 bucks or 120 or 150 is that's, you know, that's where the action is. That's awesome. Now, I definitely don't want to be selling these one at a time at three dollars. I straight up, straight up wouldn't bother to list them. In fact, I was telling member, members of our Discord this week that I don't list any card under ten dollars at this point. Like, I literally don't sell cards under ten bucks. Anything lower than that is just sitting around in my collection. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't usually bother much lower than five, five or um, six. There are going to be extended arts of this, and currently they are too expensive for my liking. But if they get cheap enough, and I think they will. Um, 
then those are legit targets as well. And extended art foils for this should get real cheap in Europe. I don't, you know, right now there, there's not enough vendors listing yet on the extended art stuff because they probably don't know how many they're going to crack, so they're not quite sure how many they're going to end up with. But anyway, currently it's about a dollar in the U.S. right now on pre-order. Could get down to as low as 50 or 60 cents in the U.S. I'd be hard-pressed to imagine it gets much lower than that. But picking up 100 of these or even 12 of these in Europe along with some other order you're, you're processing, um, you know, you're picking up some chromatic or some double visions. And there's a bunch of other rares in this set that are down that low in Europe that all are worth a look for sure. Um, you know, most of the mythics seem more or less priced appropriately. Grim Tutor is still $19 in Europe, which seems too high to me. Um, definitely want it to come down. Uh, but you got stuff like Rune Halo, Teferi's Ageless Insight. That's the one that if you would draw a card, except the first one you draw in each of your draw steps, draw two cards instead. <laughs> so it's got like a, that's an Alhamrat's Archive ability, right? And that, that card did well over time. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, I picked up Japanese foils of Alhamrat's archive at like seven bucks or something. I just sold one at like twenty five or something like that. Uh, yeah, that's Fairy's Ageless Insight. It seems like a very good one to go after too, since that's just like, oh, you're gonna draw a couple extra cards. Well, how about you just draw all of them? Um, yeah, but Double Vision, you know, anywhere below fifty cents, I think I'm a buyer. Azusa Lost but Seeking is about five bucks in Europe right now. That seems reasonable. Yeah, um, I remember when that card was like forty five bucks. Could even get a little lower, I would imagine. Veto, Thorn of the Dusk Rose, I already bought a bunch of near a dollar. Um, that's the whenever you gain life, target opponent loses that much life. That's a EDH staple for sure. Um, your uh, beloved Gadrak the Crown Scourge that you discussed last week is $0.32 cents in Europe right now. That's now, the- I want to be, be clear. I think the card is interesting, but I'm not specking on it. I mm-hmm. think that if you're going to spec on anything, it's the other cards in that deck. How about a 26 cent pack leader? That's the 2 2 for two other dogs you control get plus one plus one. And whenever a pack leader attacks, prevent all combat damage that would be dealt this turn to dogs you control. Mm, that might work. I'm definitely a little turned off to tribal stuff lately. Uh, so here's an interesting point, though. The dog cat commander is apparently the buy a box promo. I did see that comment today. And so I need to double check this, but that leads me to believe that the buy a box promo is a non-foil. And as they did with Kenrith in Throne of Eldraine, the foils, sorry, the buy a box promo might be a foil and the non-foil might only appear in the collector boosters. Yes, that is what I would expect to be the case. Now, I'm not 100% on that, but I don't think the dog cat is in the set. I think it's only buy a box. And that leads me wondering how many of those are even going to be floating around. I mean, if that was on a short, uh, like print to demand thing that they did just recently leading up to this, knowing COVID was a thing and they had to decide, are we printing a hundred thousand of these or 50 or 20,000 or 15? I would think they'd be aiming real low because those buy box promos are only supposed to be given to you if you buy a box in store. They're not guaranteed. They're not packed with the box, and I don't think you get them online, if I'm not mistaken. Here's my I, so all of that can be true, right? Not thought of any of that. Here's my concern with where you're going with this: is who wants to buy the dog cat commander? I'm. This is not me, not you, it, but plenty of people. 
Oh yeah, 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 right, right, right. Super, but we're agreeing that it's probably a fairly casual player, right? Like tribal already mostly speaks to more ca- a more casual subset of players, and if you're talking about the dog and cat tribal, like that's definitely going to be a real, I think, level casual. Like I saw somebody comment, like, "Oh, like, oh, this is buy a box, something, something. I'm, I don't need it, but my wife is going to be really happy. I get it in my box." So we already have like the casual of the casual group who want this card. But then on top of that, how many of them are going to pay a premium to not have it in foil? Right. Like it just seems so much more likely they will just. Oh, I can get the foils for three bucks. Oh, the non foils are more. They're 15. I wonder why. Well, I don't really like foils, but like it's my commander. I don't have to shuffle it. And I'm not paying $15 for this thing for, you know. I don't know. It just, it seems like you're right. Like it feels like the supply could end up really low, but I just can't imagine how many people actually want to buy this card and not foil at a premium. It made sense with Kenrith. I don't think it makes sense here. Something tells me pack leader is going to buy a list for a dollar down the road. And given that I can get them at a quarter, I'm probably supposed to just maybe not a hundred, but I probably grab 20 or 30 of them and then see if that works. Because if it does, it would be a pretty good signal for this kind of thing for the future, since Wizards seems all about the, the leaning into the pet owners. Well, I suppose, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good way to kind of test the waters and see what happens there. I mean, technically, you don't have to buy them to know how it goes, right? You can just put a mark in your calendar to check back every three months and see what the buy list looks like. But, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it would give you an idea. And then if they print more cat and dog crap next year, we'll know, is it worth going after it or not? All right, a couple more things I noticed that are too cheap in Europe. Heroic interventions are $2.50. Ooh, yeah, that you're probably waiting on. You're going to wait a little while to sell those, but I bet you can get buy lists at six or seven bucks for those in within 12 to 18 months. Yeah, probably less than a year, I would guess. Conspicuous Snoop, uh, potentially multi format staple, selling about $3 in mm, Europe. Do not like that at all. Really? No, I don't. I mean, l- listen, I am. I, I, you guys, have, anyone who's been a long time listener knows I love me some wacky combos, but I'm just very uncon. First of all, I'm not convinced that that combo is actually like going to work. But more importantly, I just don't know where anyone is going to play it anytime soon. And the nice thing is, no one's really playing any paper events. So just wait and see how it is on Moto, right? Like, let people try it on Moto and see if it's any good. And then you'll have time to buy copies for paper if you want to spec on them because it looks like the deck is good. But remember, you are going to have, like, an entire format life cycle take place on Moto before you get a chance to play this thing in paper. Speaker of the Heavens, 1-1 one, one for 1, Vigilance Lifelink, Tap to create a 4-4 white angel creature token with flying if you have at least 7 more life than your starting life total. Seems like the kind of thing that will be worth money over time. Uh, could be, I guess. Maybe. Is that is that only EDH? Probably. Yeah. I'm, just trying, I'm trying to, I, I say that as like I'm trying to think about the card. It could be in some kind of Soul Sisters type build eventually in Pioneer, I would imagine. Yeah, you know what? That's true. I, I'm sorry. I, I thought you said it was three mana, but it's not. It's one mana. 
Yeah, I take that back. This could this could definitely show up in some sort of life oriented pioneer build because that is a pr- actually a pretty significant impact. Um, if you turn one this and then you like you know turn two between turn two and three, you can get a lot of life and start pumping out four fours. That does seem pretty solid. How do you feel about Sublime Epiphany? This is the four double blue. Uh, it has five modes on it, and you pick as many as you want. So it's a six mana instant, counter a spell, counter target activated or triggered ability, return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand, create a token that's a copy of target creature you control, target player draws a card. You're almost never going to hit five. You should probably uh, make it, you get to make everyone else at the table take a drink if you hit all five on this, but you will hit four pretty much every time, um, which is definitely... You know, counter spell, what is that worth? Like two, two and a half mana, roughly. Um, especially if we're talking EDH, probably two. Uh, balance a permanent, probably worth one. Create a token of a copy you control, that's like two or three. And draw a card is worth like roughly one, the one and a half. So you're getting a bit of a mana savings when you play this. Um, assuming you hit four out of five modes. Uh, ultimately, it's probably a little... Bl- not a, enough below rate for me to care really yeah i think that's kind of where i am on it like this should cost if you put, did it all independently like maybe seven to eight eight maybe but like six isn't enough of a savings on that how about indulging patrician one white black one four flyer lifelink at the beginning of your end step, if you gained three or more life this turn, each opponent loses three life. This is currently nine cents in Europe. To me, that sounds like a $2 uncommon. That'll get played for sure. Nine cents? Yeah, I... Given, you know, if this was just like a normal fall set, I'd probably be like... I don't know. There's just going to be so many of those. You might be waiting around, but given that this is a, you know, COVID corset, probably a fine decision. Yeah. Nine cents. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be able to buy, buy listies for a quarter. I would bet. Anyway, that's the stuff on my radar for <laughs> early targets in Europe. Uh, I suspect that the prices will only get better in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean that's pretty good. I, I I'm I mean the product is hitting the hitting the streets in America in what like two three weeks probably roughly. Well, so. that that does lead us to one of our topics, which is that Wizards announced that there are going to be product delays in North America. Uh, let me just see what that was all about. Yeah, so right, cool. the fall. The following was announced yesterday, June 15th, and basically said that because of COVID, Secret Layer Ultimate Editions, which had a North American release date of June 12th, uh, retailers in the U.S. can expect to get their Secret Layer Ultimate Editions within a month of the June 12th release, so up until July 12th. Canada apparently unaffected, and as far as I know, Europe unaffected as well. Um, this is interesting because we are currently doing a big group by ordering $250 secret ultimate secret layer sets from Europe, um, from vendors there. And the 
total price of the singles is north of 400 if I recall correctly. So if the U.S. vendors don't get any inventory and our stuff from Europe lands within a week, the arbitrage gap should be pretty nice. You can underprice the market and still probably take home 30 or 40% pretty quick. And that is a gap you can drive a truck through. Yep. Uh, apparently, Corset 2021 bundles are going to be a problem. This is what we used to call fat packs. Um, it doesn't seem to affect uh, the <laughs> normal booster boxes. Corset 2021 Planeswalker decks and Arena starter kits are apparently also delayed and will not be available till July 3rd. And then Jumpstart uh, was supposed to launch on July 17th, but they said some retailers will experience availability issues at launch. What that tells me is that the print run for Jumpstart, they only got, they've been forced to do it a little more slowly. So they probably made sure that their most important distributors got X amount of product. And those distributors are picking and choosing who gets their allocations fulfilled first. Yeah. I, I don't know. The takeaway here for me is draft, not some normal packs, uh, collector's boosters and pre-release packs, the, le- the least relevant of the three, but draft packs and you know booster boxes and collector's booster boxes for Core 21 are not impacted yep. uh, with a release date of July 3rd. So just over two weeks. So I think that's probably the, you know, the, the key point here is the, the stuff that we really care about isn't impacted. Yep, sounds most good. likely to care about. So, so I, as for all the M twenty one stuff, I suppose that I would be looking at these. You know, probably what several days to a week after M twenty one. So, like middle of July is probably when you would want to look at what the core twenty one glut looks like. I I usually do three buying periods for any given set at this point because I think all of them have uh, an opportunity to usually provide some some form of opportunity worth paying attention to that might not be available during one of the other periods. Um, we used to tell people just wait until peak supply, but that's not always true because sometimes cards are underpriced. So pre-order, you're looking for cards that you think are good that other people don't. Um, and in Europe, that means you know they're going to drastically underprice their EDH cards and you're hoping to scoop a bunch of orreries before some other vendor swoops in and grabs 200 of them. Um, and so even if Ori is going to get down to four or three fifty in Europe, I'm happy to grab some $5 copies now and then dollar cost average down the ramp just to make sure that I've got them, the ones I want in hand, um, with the stuff that's currently 11 cents, if it's going to get down to eight cents, so be it. That's not going to matter enough because I'm expecting that the European buy list on, you know, that vampire at nine cents is going to be somewhere between, 30 cents and three dollars and i don't know what the number is going to be but all of those opportunities are attractive so i'll just grab some yep now the next period you want to look at is release weekend because basically the friday of the release that's when a lot of vendors crack their product and post their stuff to tcg player and so forth and that's when the north american prices tend to drop uh as low as they possibly can that's when you start looking at people that might have posted extended art foils too cheap um, that are going to be really good, uh, etc. And then beyond that, you you tend to look four to six weeks out during at peak supply to see where you stand. Now with the core set, I'm not sure you want to wait that long because they may have short printed the set, and and if they short printed the set, it could dry up faster than you think on the good cards. 
Well, and the distribution here is particularly odd because normally you have a period of drafting at your local store and at GPs that kind of continues to put packs into the market for a period of time. But I think what we're going to end up with here is peak supply has got to be like a week after this thing comes out, right? Like all, there's no there's no peak- drafting. Yeah, like basically you're going to have that initial wave of booster boxes that are sent out to people who bought them pre-ordered them but then that's it right like no one's going to be going to physical locations to open them you might have some people who you know two or three weeks after 21 comes out decides to go buy a box for whatever reason but i would have to imagine the lion's share of this product that will get ordered in booster box form already has been ordered or will be ordered within about a week of it coming out one of the things people can look at from a collector's perspective, a little less so on the spec side, is that pre-release kits are going to be in much greater supply at lower prices online pretty much for the whole year. And they can be actually a really good way to get a bite-sized chunk of a set um, and get a you know pre-release promo card, which keep in mind during normal times, Card Kingdom was, you know, for uh, most of the last few years, Card Kingdom tended to pay more for uh, rarer versions of set foils than they did for the normal versions. Um, you know, pre-release kits, I think our sponsor Cool Stuff had Ikoria pre-release kits at $22 or something, and you get two bonus booster packs on top of that. That's a real solid price that's not too far off what a cheap booster box can cost online. So is that um, eight packs? Yeah. Eight packs for 22 bucks. So and there's a 36 pack. Yeah, so you're looking at like, that's about a $90 box roughly. Yeah. Which and you, is and you get the, and you get the pre-release promo and the die and whatever. So right, pre-release foil helps, and also pre-release packs just tend to be the thing that you can buy two of those. And if you happen to be so lucky to be stuck at home during COVID with somebody who plays Magic, now you now you guys can make a go of it. Um, we're picking up like a whole bunch of the Core Twenty One uh, pre-release packs because we're going to run a big tournament with the Pro Traders. One of the other things that we've kicked off for our membership is doing regular tournaments uh, during this COVID period. So basically, we're going to get a whole bunch of prize. The, the pre-release kits will constitute prizes. People will get an online uh, pool of cards to play with, which they will import into Arena after they've drafted for a while there and have unlocked enough cards, and then they will do a big playoff um, for prizing. So it's going to be pretty cool. Oh, that'll be fun. Um, all right, so let's talk about the cards that Wizards banned this week and the uh, controversy surrounding that. Right, so if you're unaware, Wizards uh, earlier this week in a effort guided or misguided to make strides towards improving racial relations with the community on a racial axis making the game more inclusive i guess is the simplest way to put it yeah decided to ban several cards um based on their god it's so i I, i'm going to try and describe this from wizard's perspective i these aren't this isn't my word this is me trying to interpret what wizards did wizards looked at these cards and said these cards seem like they're kind of racist uh so we're gonna ban them um invoke prejudice chief among them and then it had jihad uh, army of allah uh stone thrower devils in prison and i think there was one or two more protest gypsies jihad and crusade yeah so there were uh 
I, I the, the most immediate story here is that in response to banning these cards, prices kind of spiked because suddenly these cards were they're all completely tournament irrelevant. No, they're none of them see play. Invoke Prejudice saw a little bit of commander play, but not much at all. Crusade Crusade's probably the most the widest played of the bunch. Yeah, but even then, I, I would agree with that. And even then, like in maybe kitchen table casual decks, because you found copies and old school. from revised or something. Yeah. Oh, in old school, maybe. Yeah, not a big deal. Um, it seemed like banning, making a public statement about how they were banning these cards and fixing the gatherer IDs, by the way, which is a little bit of a story unto itself, uh, probably did more harm than good in the sense. A, all of these cards jumped in price because people were like, oh, these cards are now taboo. They're banned. These are the the cards wizards didn't want you to have. And there's a, a sort of a legend you know, value to them that wasn't there before. And, uh, you know, just to, to reiterate, we do not condone the market behavior don't do not condone getting involved with these from a perspective of trying to profit like do not buy and sell these cards and try and make money off of them that's gross stay away from it just that's gross that's gross and crappy at the same time let's confront head-on that you know a few months ago i was looking at beta cards to out to on card kingdom and certainly considered picking up a beta crusade and this is with me thinking that I am Mr. Progressive, Mr. Sensitive. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the Muslim community in Toronto here um, and try to be sensitive to the issues that are relevant to these people that I care about quite a lot and still would have been willing to buy a beta version of it. So, I mean, as much as I would never have bought Invoke Prejudice because I think it is one of the more extreme examples um, I have, uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I, you probably know this now, and for those who didn't know, Invoke Prejudice's art was done by an actual literal Nazi, uh, which was not known at the time that they purchased the art for the card. But uh, apparently, they went and looked at the guy's artwork, like for more samples afterwards or something, and found out. It's also a card that basically depicts the Ku Klux Klan delivering yes. their brutal form of disgusting justice and the the whoever set up the gatherer database id for the card used a white power uh number to do so so somebody along the way either thought they were making a, a cruel joke or was fully in support of what the card ostensibly represented I, to its artist i i, I i'm i'm gonna give them a slight benefit of the doubt, knowing that you had some computer nerd who was doing this back in whenever know, early two thousands, late nineties, probably just thought it was funny rather than anything else. And if you, if by the way, you think it was uh, uh, just an extreme coincidence, the I will There's let you no know way. that the 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 gatherer number for Lick Lich is six six six, which is also like okay, no, one of these might have been a coincidence. There's no way they both are. Yeah, the point I'm trying to make is that it's very easy to stand up and condemn this stuff after the fact. But if you want to get max value out, out of it in terms of how you are going to be a better ally to the community, then many of us who overlooked these things for a long time need to have a think about what made them so easy to overlook up until this point. And I think that these are 
solid connection points to the very, you know, the core concept of privilege, right? The you tend to overlook this stuff because there's a lot going on, but also because your inherent biases are present in the way that you take in information and parse information. And the Western culture is so steeped in many of these biases, you know, 30 years of action movies only ever having bad guys that are Muslim, et cetera, et cetera, that you don't, Uh, don't forget forget that 10 years where they were all Russian. Sure. (laughs) Don't, you know, stuff like jihad or crusade will strike you a different way. Uh, And part of being better at being a a good community member for any community, whether it's gaming or otherwise, is improving your ability to spot these things that are problematic on behalf of the community as a whole and, you know, flag them in order of priority so that you can just roll the ball forward and end up in a more inclusive position. And I, I and I, I want to make the point here that it's uh, all of us as as allies, right? The best ally we can be is to listen to the people who this impacts um, and who, who, who this is immediate, more immediately relevant to. Um, because we are not those groups, so we don't have, you know, I'm, I'm just a straight white guy. Like, I don't have, you know, I'm not in any of these minority groups. So the best thing I can do is listen to the people who are who are impacted by these issues. Um, and I, I do I do agree that, like, I need, I need to be actively conscious about how this stuff, what this stuff means. But at the same time, um, I, I want to make sure that I'm letting these other individuals lead those conversations. Now... Did you happen to catch Rich Shea's comment on this? Yes, uh, which I a, thought a poignant analysis of it, of yes. several of the angles, which I thought was really good. And and one of the things he 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 put out this petition, essentially this this document on Twitter earlier today, where he he raises some issues with Wizards' behavior, and I think it's a very well put, um, and it's kind of like a petition too. But one of the things he points out is wizards rushed to ban these cards because they think they're racist. And then he goes, well, you label jihad as racist, but like jihad, like invoke prejudice, there's no question, but jihad isn't inherently racist. Like, and the fact that you think it is kind of already tells us something about what you're viewing this as. So uh, that this is very much like you look at that decision and like, all right, this is definitely kind of like a knee jerk reaction by a room full of white people trying to I'm going to give them the again, the benefit of the doubt here, try and be as much of a supportive organization as they can be. But they're still stuck with a room full of white people uh, who are ultimately not going to be making the best decisions they could here because they lack the diversity of voices, which goes then ties into their whole problems with their hiring, um, which, you know, has been a, a bigger topic on social media this week uh, and very rightly so. All right. So to give them some credit, the, the sentence from the actual article unveiling these bans is to that end, we will be removing a number of images from our database that are racist or culturally offensive. So I'm not sure that they they really labeled Jihad as racist, per se, um, as opposed to in a very hurried fashion, trying to, you know, brainstorm a bunch of cards that were problematic. Now, 
that does nothing to detract from the criticisms and analysis that were tabled after the fact. And it certainly does nothing to detract from the tokenism of lifting this particular torch in the darkness when, as you alluded to, there are issues with hiring practices, there are issues with um, uh, internal promotion, with pay scales, there are plenty of issues inside the Wizards of the Coast Hasbro domain. Um, they need a more diverse set of voices, they, they need to improve a bunch of different behaviors. And while I, I think we can all applaud that this is still, at least for some of these cards, uh, a strong step forward to condemn them, and remove them from play, there's certainly more work to be done. I, 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 I feel like I have to deviate a little bit here. Uh, I'm not going to give them credit on the terminology for, you know, racist or culturally insensitive because the culturally or culturally, offensive. Cu- culturally offensive, the or culturally offensive is just a blanket term. It, it's sort of like, a well, we really think they're racist, but we don't want to say they're just racist because then people could be like, this isn't racist. So we're just going to kind of use a little softer term just to basically to imply that we we're a little uncomfortable with these cards uh but i I don't i don't love the connotation there still because you're still saying that the card jihad is culturally insensitive um when it doesn't necessarily need to be and again i'm not going to be the arbiter of whether it is or not that's not my job i'm not the person to make that decision but what's important is they i don't think they talked to any of the people who would be able to help them make that decision which yeah. is the larger problem here um and also you know if you want to expand the the definition if you want to say okay well we don't we want to get rid of the cards that are culturally insensitive can we talk about kaladesh just just kaladesh Right. Like there were many uh, members of the magic community um, from the, I guess, backgrounds for whom Kaladesh really rubbed them the wrong way, uh, which included, by the way, Rosewater making a I I think it was Rosewater, somebody making a 7-Eleven joke and convenience store joke on Twitter in the course of releasing Kaladesh, which is like, mm, you want to talk about culturally insensitive, like, it's not just the name of the card, right? Like, there's more aspects to it than that. So, I don't I don't want to give them the credit for for this here. It, it, on that point, on that point. Yeah, they're, where, they're, where they're headed here is a reckoning in terms of how they borrow from the international pantheon of cultures to world build. And mm-hmm what the modern version of that process should look like and who should be involved in setting the parameters, who should be involved in establishing, um, you know, what touch points are, are complementary and which ones will end up offensive um, or will perpetuate bias or uh, misunderstanding. There, there, there's a lot of work to be done here, and I'm not convinced that they have the mechanisms in place to fully embrace it, but I, I wish them all the best in the process because it's it's going to be a necessary one. Yeah, and I, the, uh, the, the method by which they choose to... I want Magic to be a play, a game, and, and something that people of all, you know, all people can come to and feel welcome and included, right? Like I I want that and I want them to do the best version of that. 
so far when you and and you look at Kaladesh and you're like, all right, again, if I choose to give them the benefit of the doubt, you have a, a group of really mostly white people who are who tried pretty hard to not make Kaladesh just nothing but a pile of stereotypes. But the problem is you still had a room that was driven by that community, that, that, that demographic, which, so ultimately they're just going to get it wrong. And you're right that they are dramatically going to, they basically, you can't pull from real world cultures and have it not be um, essentially a white person's interpretation of that culture until you start putting additional voices on the team who can really provide some greater cultural context and input on these things. So there's not a right what you you literally cannot do Kaladesh the right way if not, you know 29 out of the 30 people on your team are are white, right? Like just, it's not it's not going to work. Um, and so. It, Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. no, no. You're on a roll. Go for it. Uh, it, it, it. It segues, and this segues into uh, the you know, ill-fated, I think, social media tweets that Wizard started with um, as the uh, George Floyd protests were really gaining steam, and all the brands had the rush and prove they were woke. Um, and Wizard, the Wizard social media team, uh, uh, tried to highlight their black um, and pe- person of color contributors. And they started tweeting about it. Pro and players, I was like, community members, content creators, yeah, etc. That was like, I remember as they started that, and I'm like, oh, this makes me uneasy. And I can't put my finger on why, but I don't think I like this. And then they did, they talked about Cedric Williams, and they talked about, uh, or Cedric Phillips, and they talked about Dave Williams, and then who are both, by the way, uh, Cedric, or the, and Rashad. So talk about Cedric, who I'm pretty sure is a contractor, if he's even... I mean, he's gotten a couple of paychecks from Wizards for commentating, I think, but he's not an employee. They talked about Rashad Miller, who um, is the founder of uh, GGS Live, which was the, essentially the precursor to streaming of Paper Magic events, who I'm also not convinced is a, mag- is a Wizards employee. He's probably still a contractor, but maybe not. And then uh, they ended up talking about Dave Williams and Greg Orange later on, although there was a delay in getting to Greg Orange, which is also ridiculous because he like won a pro tour within the last year or something. And they like they named like essentially two contractors and two pro players and then ran out of people to talk about. And it was like aside from this like blatant display of tokenism and trying to say, well, we're not racist. We have black friends. uh, It's also really highlighted how few people were involved in the Wizards and Magic Orbit who aren't white because they just ran out of people after that. And it was like, God, this is not what you wanted to do. There's a there's a distinct cynicism that will you will bring down upon you when it's only in the moments of social media pressure that you do these things. Yeah, which is sort of the point. If, if you <laughs> if you're already doing well by these segments of your community on a day to day basis, then you won't feel so hurt like in a rush to suddenly make a statement because your track record will already be established. Mm-hmm. And and if it feels like you're struggling to make that statement, it's probably because your day-to-day didn't look that great. Yeah. And yeah. And, and that's the underline. So the 
and I mean, even I mean, we're two middle-aged white guys here having this conversation, you know, in many ways howling into the void because the people listening that agree with us are preaching to the choir and the people that don't are telling us to go fuck ourselves already turn this off. The, you know, we would at MGG Price love to add uh, more diverse voices to the team. So if you're out there and you're listening and you think you could contribute and you think you have a unique voice uh, to add, we're certainly in the market. Uh, for said same. Um, I do want to roll back to uh, part of what you were talking about earlier and, and and make a point. A lot of what I saw rolling across social media, as is common, is this premise from the reactionary right that it doesn't matter what they do on Kaladesh, for instance, because that is a fantasy world. And a fantasy world is is not a real world. They don't have to be sensitive to um, you know, the South Asian cultures, because they are not referring to those cultures, they are creating a fantasy world. The counter to this point is very simple. <laughs> All fantasy worlds are derived from cultural reference. And if you want people to feel inclusive, as you should, from any and all cultures to participate in your strategy game, or any game activity or otherwise, then it behooves you to consider whether the way that you might reference your poor or incomplete or dated or biased understanding of the cultures that they come from and borrowing from and representing it in their game might be something that they would be comfortable with. Well, the the claim... Sorry, go ahead, finish your thought. And for people outside the U.S., it is a constant source of frustration that because the U.S. culture is so inwardly focused, largely because you've been a net cultural exporter for so many years, um, it is often seems like it is a struggle for uh, people in the U.S. to grasp these concepts more than... In other places, and it's not true of the entirety of the U.S. It's it in many many cases will depend on how diverse your environment is. Um, but I can tell you from sitting in the middle of city of Toronto, the most diverse metropolis on the planet, um, it's a lot easier to get an understanding of how diverse this planet actually is, and how much you stand to gain if you just shut up <laughs> and let other voices speak for a little while. Uh, yes. I, I don't buy the, the, the argument that it's a fantasy world, blah, blah, blah. Like I, there's no way that argument is made in good faith. People don't make that argument with, that, with truly believing that point, because all you have to do is look at, the context of the conversations that that take place um, and the and the comments that are made, like the people who are saying, "Oh, it's a fantasy world; it doesn't have any bearing in real life, so it shouldn't matter." Like, yeah, but then why are people like making jokes about Quickie Mart and convenience stores when they're talking about the planes influenced by like uh, Indian and Pakistani culture? Like, this is not a clearly this is not standalone and you know that you were just trying to find a reason to not care. So I, I, I harbor no, no desire to have that conversation. I want no discussions in bad faith. And that's primarily what all that is. The, 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 uh, go ahead. 
I feel like we've had our say here and our voices are yeah, again yes, the the, yeah. the least important. So maybe we can move on. Yeah, if I I, I do want to say if I had known we were going to talk about this tonight, I would have said that we should grab somebody who can speak uh with a more authoritative voice on it, but you br- so but it was sort of unplanned, so we didn't get that opportunity. Well, I heard that they chased Shivam off Twitter. Uh today so maybe we'll try to track the gentleman down and see if he wants to come to have a chat oh, I, that would be great i'm laughing because i can't fathom but uh i would be happy to have him on i i will try to track the gentleman down and we'll see if he'll uh have a chat with us <laughs> okay uh the, the 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 bottom line here is uh don't buy and sell those cards that's a crummy thing to do don't be a bad person uh and let's all ask wizards to do a better job of a lot of things. The voices of yeah, a lot of things, but prim- you know, amplifying the voice of black and uh, people of color voices. Yeah, I mean, I could go on. There are several other segments that they need to work on as well. But <laughs> the all right. So the other only other thing I wanted to mention this week was eBay payments is going to be a thing in the U.S. for eBay sellers as of mid July. Uh, you will no longer be able to get your payments uh, through PayPal in instant fashion. Uh, for people that deal mostly on TCG Player, this will actually sound pretty familiar. Um, eBay is bringing all of their payments, their payment system on board. So they're basically taking control of that and they will pay out to a bank account. Um, this means that you need to register with them uh, potentially as a business uh, or with your social insurance number. And you'll need to work that out with your accountant. For those of you that may be you know, fudging things here and there, you might want to get your house in order because uh, eBay certainly is and you're going to get dragged along for the ride. Um, one of the things to consider is that the overall fee structure, at least in the short to midterm, is going to be a little better. Um, it seems like the fees will be something around 12% instead of the 13 to 14% you probably are paying from a combination of eBay and PayPal fees. Um, and as long as you don't mind that money dumping to a bank account instead of your PayPal account, then, you know, all the better. Uh, so people should just be aware of, uh, that little change, structural change to getting access to your money on eBay starting next month. This is bad news for like you and you alone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, very annoying for me, but say love you. Well, you've, you, you had your good run. Time to wrap it up. (laughs) Sure enough. All right. So uh, I guess we'll call that a wrap for this week. Where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I am always on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. How about you? You guys can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. I'm also constantly haunting our Discord, trying to drive value for our members. Speaking of which, I'd like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Pass Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Brings us to the end of episode 224. Uh, And I believe we will be doing this again next week with uh, Jason Alt to discuss Magic 2021. Uh, Core 2021 and Jumpstart, because we should have all the Jumpstart previews in hand by then as well. 
Oh, right. That's actually different cards. I forgot about that. Uh, the overlapping cards. Overlapping. Yeah. Some number of cards Shared. are jumping or starting. Yeah. Thank you, Travis. We'll see y'all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.